Good mm. evening. You have the six dates, do you not? What happened in 640 B.C.? What? Josiah became king. How old was he? Eight. And what happened in uh, 627 B.C.? Jeremiah was called to the prophetic ministry. And what happened in 609 B.C.? Josiah was killed. And a lot of other things happened. Jehoahaz was put on the throne. Pharaoh Necho took him into Egypt. He put his brother Jehoiakim on the throne. Okay. The guys were going to give a drum roll when I said Jehoiakim. I need him back up here to give us some background music. 605, what happened? Assyria was completely defeated at Carchemish. Babylonians took over. Nebuchadnezzar became king, and he forced Jehoiakim to submit to his rule, and he took Daniel and some of his companions into captivity as hostages. 605. What happened in 597? Jehoiakim rebelled. And Nebuchadnezzar came back, and they probably killed Jehoiakim after they had put his young son on the throne, who reigned three months. And Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin, the queen mother, and some 3,000 other people into captivity in 597. What happened in 586? Zedekiah revolted. Nebuchadnezzar came back, and he said, I warned you the last time. And this time he tore down the city, tore down the temple, took a bunch of people into captivity, killed Zedekiah's sons, poked out Zedekiah's eyes, and took him into captivity. And that ended the first temple period in Judah's history. From about 970 up until 586, Solomonic Temple had stood. And that's an important era in Israel's history. And what happens after that? is extremely important for Israel's history. Now, tonight we want to turn to a personal section in Jeremiah's life. We have several of these in which we have a little bit of an aside, as it were, to talk about his own struggles. We don't have this much in the other prophets, but we have it in Jeremiah. And tonight I want to talk about the risk of service in Jeremiah chapter 11. In 1956, there were five young men who were trying to contact a primitive tribe in Ecuador called the Alcas. And you know the story. Uh, those five were all murdered by the Alca Indians. And interestingly, the son of one of those Alca Indians has been in the United States with uh, Phil Saint sharing the truth of the gospel. But in those days, 1956, which was 58 years ago, it was a very traumatic experience that the whole world was conscious of. Today, you can murder people and nobody even knows it. But in those days, it wound up on the cover of Life magazine. <clears throat> They'd sent their crack photographer down, Cornell Kappa. He had pictures of all the bodies floating in the water, and it was on the cover of Life magazine. Anybody remember Life magazine here? I and some other young people where I was going to Bible college were working at the Treasury Department down on 15th and Pennsylvania Avenue, crossing the White House. 
and we'd walk down every day and go by the guards at the desk to be admitted. And when we came by this day, the guard had a copy of Life magazine open in front of him. And he said to us, is this what you young people are training to do? And he was angry. He couldn't believe that anybody would be stupid enough to go into a primitive jungle to try to reach these crazy Indians and wind up being murdered and leave wives and babies alone. Good question. Why would we do it? Why does anyone do it? We know that people have suffered. A friend of ours just a few years ago had spent 30 years in Indonesia, and he and one of his Indonesian co-workers were charged with blasphemy, and this American missionary spent a year in prison. They had a trial. They declared him persona non grata and kicked him out of the country, and the co-worker was put in prison for several years. But he writes back and said, like Joseph, I have been able to witness to people in prison. I have seen people coming to know Christ. You see, if you're going to serve the Lord, there's always a certain amount of risk involved. And if you're not willing to take risk, you're probably not going to do much for the Lord. I know parents that are protective of their children to the point that they don't want them to become missionaries or to go into difficult places or dangerous places. Folks, the worst thing that could happen to you is not that you die. The worst thing that could happen is you die without Christ. And you shouldn't be afraid to die. We should be ready at any time. Now, don't go out and walk in front of a bus just to prove my point. But we should be ready to die at any time and to give our lives to the Lord to do with us whatever he wants to do. Do I hear an amen to that tonight? And remember, when you say amen, that means I really agree with that. And it might affect you, and it might affect your kids. Don't protect your kids. Send them out. Our son and his wife have been in France for almost 30 years. All three of their children were born there. We see them every two or three years. And we're delighted to have them there. A lot less trouble than having them next door. But to see God using them in that country, which isn't exactly a dangerous country or a hard country. It's a pleasant country in many ways. But to see them there, even though we don't have the contact we'd like to have with them, we praise God for that and wouldn't trade it for anything. So here we are in Joshua, in uh, Jeremiah. And he's saying in verse 18, that there's a risk in what I'm doing. Every so often, Jeremiah says, I think I'm going to take early retirement. I'm really tired of what I'm having to go through. Who needs this stuff? And sometimes we get tired of serving the Lord. We get tired of witnessing. First of all, notice Jeremiah's fear. Verse 18 says, Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it. And I know it, for you showed me their doings. You say, what's that about? When you read this chapter, if you did this afternoon or this week, you probably wondered, what is that about? There's no introduction. There are no names given. There's nothing. Just jumps right into it. <clears throat> so first of all, Jeremiah says, God gave me some inside information. I knew that something bad 
was about to go down. And I knew that it affected me. And God told me about this ahead of time. And then notice in verse 19, we read about the threat on his life. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. Now, why would they do that? Why are they anxious to kill Jeremiah? Because he's preaching a message that said God is going to judge this place. And God is going to bring condemnation upon you for your disobedience, for your failure to trust in me. And this city is going to be destroyed. And this temple in which you put all your trust is going to be torn down. And they said, that is treasonous. And we are going to kill this man because of what he's saying and doing. I don't know about you, but I've never faced anything like this. My life has been fairly easy. Um, no one's ever threatened to kill me. I've had few people get mad at me, not too many. I don't know what I would do if I knew that my life was being threatened. When we go to Israel this next month, we plan to stop in Jordan and visit Imad Shahadeh, who started the Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. Imad was a student of mine in Texas. And he came to the United States as a student. He was an Orthodox Christian ethnically. And he came to know Christ while he was here. He graduated from Dallas Seminary, went on for the doctoral program, and started this seminary. But he told me, he said, I've been called to prison, uh, called down to the police station several times, never knowing if I was going to have to go to jail or not. He said, eventually, after several years of that, life became so tense, I had to come to the States just to relax and get away from it a little bit. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a situation like that, where you know that you're being monitored, people are listening to you, and they're going to arrest you if you get over the line as they perceive it. Jeremiah says, God told me they were going to kill me. And here I am, he said, just like a little lamb going around, and I have nothing that I'm doing that should make anyone angry or upset, and they want to kill me for what I'm, what's going on. All right, let's see if this thing is turned on. Let's try that one. Ah, that works better. Jeremiah's fear, he's got inside information from God, and he's got a prayer coming up in verse 20. And notice we shift from prose to poetry. He says, but O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously. I like it when people say to you, uh, you tell me that you're doing these certain things, and I'm going to call you on it and see if you'll do it. I used to visit an old lady, and she always wanted me to read out of James, where it says it's the responsibility of the Christian to visit the widows. And she was a widow. So she let me know what my responsibility was. And that's what Jeremiah is doing with God. This is your responsibility. You are to judge righteously. You're always testing the mind and the heart. Therefore, he says, I want to see your vengeance on them. For I have revealed to you my cause. 
this is a Christian worker, in this sense, an Old Testament saint worker, who's asking God to kill his enemies. Wipe them out. Take care of them. Psalm 137, which is written during the exile, says, Happy are those that dice their little ones against a stone. And we look at that, we say, wow. But this is written out of a deep, passionate time when his own life is being threatened. And he doesn't know if he's going to live beyond next week. When I drive around the Washington Beltway, I have to pass the Mormon temple with the angel Moroni sticking up on top of it. I don't know how they got that choice land, but they managed to get it. And I often wonder if I could have a bazooka and shoot that right off of the top of the thing. We need to understand that these guys are working out of passion. This doesn't mean it was right. Jesus said if someone hits you on one cheek, turn the other one. We're to pray for our enemies, but we do it with gritted teeth sometimes, don't we? We say, Lord, why can't you deal with those radicals, those radical Muslims who are murdering people? Those people in India who are taking an innocent little girl and charging her with blasphemy and then forcing her to marry some Muslim guy and convert. And you get so angry when you see this stuff that you say, how can this possibly be allowed, God? Why aren't you doing something about it? And that's his prayer. Not a very nice prayer, but that's his prayer. In verse 21, we jump back into prose again. And we read about God's promise of judgment. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the men of what place? It's right there in your Bibles at verse 21. What place is it? Anathoth. Tell me about Anathoth. We've heard it before. It's where Jeremiah was born. It's his village, his own people. His uncles, his aunts, his cousins, as you have in those extended communities in the Middle East. They want to kill him. And God says, I want you to understand that I'm going to deal with them. I know you want me to do it right now, but I'll do it in my time. Thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, saying, Don't prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth, even the year of their punishment. I will take care of this in my time. We need to recognize that as we're struggling in this cruel, vicious, hateful world that God will vindicate us in his time. Many things that we go through in this life will not be vindicated. Face that. But in eternity, they will be. God will make all things right in eternity. He doesn't make all things right in this life. And some of the people that have had to suffer so terribly at the hands of persecutors, Indonesia, where little girls were chopped to death on their way to the Christian school, India, I've just mentioned a couple of things, Pakistan, name it. There's hardly an eastern country in the world where there hasn't been some vicious persecution going on. When I was in China a few years ago, we met with a Chinese fellow that had gone to Australia and gotten a Ph.D. in chemistry. And while he was there, he became a Christian. 
and he became an avid Christian. <clears throat> he couldn't stop sharing his faith. He had books in his windows and tapes for people to see and come in, and he'd give them to them. And he got crosswise with the authority some way, and they put him into hard labor for six months. A university professor. And he said, oh, my hands were so stiff, I could hardly move them after it was all over. I said, well, what was it like? He says, pretty awful. I said, are you pretty unhappy about it? No, I'm glad to suffer for the Lord. I'm back ready to go again. That's what you love to see. Because God says, in my time, I will make this right. But it will probably not be in your time that this happens. Oh, there's a time of judgment coming. We know that it comes in 586 for them when the Babylonian army will surround the city and they will camp their armies probably in the village of Anathoth because it lies right north of the city of Jerusalem. That's the only flat area that the armies could camp in. Everything else are precipitous valleys like Somerset, Kentucky. And there's no place to put any military. But up in the northern part, there's a flat open area that they can camp in, and the village of Anathoth is there. And so these people saw the judgment of God in their time. That brings us to the second point. We only have two points tonight, so you're going to get to go home early, probably leave around 7. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12, we have Jeremiah's complaint. Because he's not happy with all that. Lord, I know you're going to make things right, but you're telling me it's going to be in your time, not mine, and I want it to be in my time. So let me talk to you about something. Verse 1. Righteous are you, Lord, when I plead with you. Again, he's saying, Lord, I know who you are. You're a good man, God, so you've got to listen to what I have to say. The way we pray and say, Lord, you know I need this, so why don't you give it to me? You're a good God who gives people things, so give me what I want. That's what he's saying. I know that you're a righteous Lord when I plead with you. So let me talk to you about your judgments. I've got a bone to pick with you, Lord. I really don't like the way you're doing things. This word for plead has to do with a court case, you know, where you go into the court and argue the case. And he said, God, I want to get you in a courtroom, and I want to argue with you about something. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? So what's the first question? Why do the wicked prosper? Age-old question. In the Old Testament, we have a body of literature called wisdom literature. The book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes, most of Proverbs, a few of Psalms. These are what we call wisdom literature. Wisdom in the Old Testament means that I learn how to live on a horizontal level. All the countries had it. The Egyptians had a whole body of wisdom literature that they taught their young people as to how to act, how to conduct themselves. When they went into the court of the king, how do you act when you're there? When you go to look for a job, here's how you act. This is called wisdom literature. The difference between most of those other wisdom countries and Israel is that in Israel, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you have God as the overarching uh, control of this situation, but still we're talking about horizontal wisdom. How do I learn to deal with human beings? So when I read the Proverbs, I see all of these things that sound so nice. 
He that goes forth in the morning bearing his seed will doubtless come again with crops and sheaves. But what if there's a famine? What if there's a drought? And he sowed his seed, but he didn't come home with sheaves. What does that do with my wisdom literature? So in the wisdom literature context, they argued that A equals B. If you do the right thing with God, he will bless you. If you go to church every Sunday, if you pay your tithes, if you do all the things you're supposed to do, God will bless you. That's what they taught. Now, Proverbs themselves have some counterbalances to that, but basically, that's the idea. You should do these things. The book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes are written to show the other side of that concept. Job is not a biography. It's not about Job. It's not about his three friends. It's really a concept that we're dealing with. How do we deal with this concept of wisdom that says that A equals B, and conversely, C equals D? If I do bad things, I'll get judgment. I'll have something awful happen to me. How many of you have said within the past year, I must have done something wrong because something's happened to me that's bad? That was the philosophy then. It's still the philosophy today. A equals B, C equals D. Now, in Job's case, <clears throat> Job and his three friends all had the same philosophy. The three friends said to Job, Job, you've got a bad case of the D's. You've lost all your livestock, you've lost your children, you've lost your health. Even your wife is telling you, why don't you just curse God and die? Give up on it. You've really got D. Therefore, you must have done C. What did you do? Fess up, Job. Tell us. Now, we know from chapter 1 of Job that Job was an upright man, a man of integrity, a righteous man. He was doing A. And he knew he was doing A. And therefore, he thought he should get B. Instead, he did A, and he got D. And he says to God, this is not right. You have reneged on your promises. If I could get you down here in a courtroom, God, I'd show you that you're wrong. We'd like to talk about the patience of Job, and that's because we only read the first two chapters. You should read the other 40. <clears throat> Because Job gets very impatient, very angry. He gets close to being blasphemous at times. Because he knows he's done A, and he thought he should get B, instead he got D. And that idea is still prevalent when Jesus is on the earth. They walk by the blind man in John chapter 9. And they say to Jesus, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind? He's blind. That's D, right? Pretty bad D to be born blind. You couldn't work. You couldn't have a job. You couldn't have support. You had to beg. D, he really got D. Therefore, somebody must have done C. Unfortunately, this guy was born that way, so he couldn't have done it. So maybe it was his parents but somebody had to do C. And Jesus said, you need to understand something. The consequence 
or the situation in which you find yourself does not necessarily have anything to do with what you did. And I want to pound that home to you tonight because some people get sick and go to the hospital and say, God put me here because I've sinned. And you have some delightful people that come in and say, what sin have you committed that God put you in the hospital? <clears throat> he says to them, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be glorified in him. Jesus said, forget this A, B, C, D stuff in terms of how people are living at any given moment. Now, don't misunderstand me. Wisdom literature is good literature. It's good to say to your kids, when you walk into school, say, good morning, ma'am, to your teacher. That's wisdom literature. How do you conduct yourself? When you go apply for a job, wear a tie. See if you can't find one somewhere. It's got to be in the closet back there. Dress yourself up, cut your hair, shave, and go in look for that job so that you can get it. That's wisdom ideas. A equals B. So the guy says, I shaved, I cut my hair, put my tie on, I still didn't get the job. Well, A is still the right thing to do. It's still proper to do A. And the normal thing is that B will follow, but not necessarily. I had a blood clot in my leg many years ago, and I went into the emergency room, and the guy's doing the sonogram, and he says, you don't smoke, do you? I says, no. Why do you ask? He says, you don't have any plaque in your veins. Ah, A produces B, sometimes. But I need to understand that these are wisdom concepts that are to be general principles. They don't always happen. God may intervene. He may allow others to intervene so that I don't get what I thought I was going to get. That's why you meet this guy that's 110. They say, what's the secret of your old age? And he says, wine, women, and song. He's been doing C all of his life, and he didn't get D. He still got B. Sometimes there are intervening circumstances that cause these things to happen that have nothing to do with what we did or didn't do. At the same time, it's always right to do A. It's always wrong to do C. And when you do A, generally speaking, the B will follow. If you eat well, watch your health, exercise, you'll probably live longer. A equals B. But you might do all of that and die of a heart attack when you're still young. You don't know. But still, it's right to do A, wrong to do C. Does this make sense? I pick up on Jerry's comment. Does this make sense? He always says. Does this make sense? <clears throat> So if you have something bad happen to you tomorrow, God forbid, and usually when I preach these sermons, I wind up something bad happening to me on the next day, I should always say to myself, Lord, what are you trying to teach me this? Have I done something I need to examine? Nothing wrong with that. But don't beat yourself with a stick and say, I must not be living right, I must not be doing what God wants me to do, or this wouldn't have happened to me. Not necessarily. And probably not. So, A generally equals B, but not always. And C generally equals D, but not always. Why do the wicked prosper, says Job, uh, says Jeremiah. This isn't right. Here I am, knocking myself out, preaching these messages that nobody wants to hear. They want to kill me. They want to lock me up. They want to shut me up. 
and all the wicked guys are getting rich up there in Anathoth. They're having a good time, and I'm the guy that's suffering when I'm doing what's right. God, this is not right. <clears throat> now, sometimes I felt like saying that to God myself. Oldest son was going through a terrible time when he was the head of a mission in Las Vegas. And a board member really was giving him a dirty time and got him fired and then took his job. And I found myself praying with my wife one morning. I'm saying, God, this isn't right. You need to deal with this. Pat said to me, you can't talk to God like that. I said, well, Jeremiah did and Job did, so why can't I? Uh, sometimes we need to, to express ourselves a little bit. And God pats us on the head and uh, sends us on our way, as he's going to do with Jeremiah in a moment. Why do the wicked prosper? Psalm 73, the psalmist goes through that same process, and he says, I ask myself, why does it happen this way? The people that try to do the right things wind up hurting, and the people that couldn't care less wind up getting rich and happy, and kids do well in school, and nothing goes wrong with their lives. This doesn't seem right. Then he said, I went into the house of the Lord, and I understood what their latter end was, that sooner or later they'd have to face God. And when they did, then it would be different than it is now. And with that, he said, I was encouraged, and I went on my way. Verses 2 through 4 pick up on the same theme. He says, why doesn't God judge? <clears throat> why doesn't God deal with these people? You've planted them. Now he's getting pretty personal here with God. You've planted them, God. Yes, they've taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You're near in their mouth, but far from their mind. They couldn't care less about you, God, and yet you're taking such good care of them. Why is this? But you, Lord, you know me. Come on, God. How about getting on my side? Why are you always on the other guy's side? Why do I have to bear the brunt of this thing? You, Lord, know me. You've seen me, and you've tested my heart toward you. You know that my motives are right, my attitude is right, everything I'm doing is right. So why don't you pull them out like sheep for the slaughter? <laughs> why don't you prepare them for the day of slaughter? How long will the land mourn? The land is suffering because of their sin, he says. And the herbs of every land wither. The beast and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said, he will never see our final end. I can do what I want to do. The story is told that many years ago in Hyde Park, England, where people used to come out and debate everything, that there was a famous atheist standing there, and he said, if there's a God in heaven, let him strike me to down and kill me within one minute. And he held his watch up, and it ticked off 60 seconds. And he shut his watch and said, you see, there is no God. One guy said, do you think you can exhaust the patience of God in one minute? God is patient even with rebels, even with people that shout in his face, even people that deny him. God is patient with them. God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We want to see them dealt with. God wants to see them brought to himself. And he wants us by our gracious response, as Peter's going to remind us, when they see our good works, they can glorify God in heaven. When they see us responding, not in anger, not in, with vindication, but willing to trust God for what happens to us, when we do that, they will see that 
and it will draw them to Christ, if anything will. Well, we had, first of all, Jeremiah's fear. <clears throat> then we had Jeremiah's complaint. And now, finally, we have God's rebuke. I said there were two points. There are three, aren't there? I told you to ask Pat if he had a question about what should be said here. God says to Jeremiah, when he's angry and unhappy, when preachers go home on Sunday night, crawl under their bed, cry in their soup, don't want to get up the next day, when we try to witness to people and they tell us to go jump in the lake, when we try to do right at work and we find everybody else is being crooked and dis disobeying God and doing dishonest things, when we have all that happen, how does God respond to us? Well, he responds to different people in different ways. In the case of Elijah, after he'd confronted Jezebel and her prophets up on Mount Carmel, he'd had such a great victory. They'd killed 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah. God had brought rain in a land that hadn't had rain for three years at Elijah's command. Everything was going A-OK. -okay. And he goes back home and goes to bed and lies down with his hands behind his back and he's thinking what wonderful things God has done for us. And he hears a knock on the door. And a messenger from Jezebel said, tomorrow by this time, your head will be off of you the way those prophets' heads are off of them. He said, oh boy, that didn't last long. And he got up and he went all the way to Beersheba. From Beersheba, he went a day's journey into the wilderness. He's lying there asleep. And God sends an angel, wakes him up, gives him some food. He goes back to sleep, and God gives him some more. And then God gently sends him on his way and rebukes him slightly in Mount Sinai and sends him back to work. Other people God deals with more sharply. Depends on your need. You know when you're raising children that some kids respond better to some things than they do other things, and you have to learn to adjust to what the kids' needs are and how they respond to things. So he says to them, verse 5, God says to Jeremiah, If you have run with the footmen, and they've wearied you, how can you contend with the horses? In other words, Jeremiah, you're complaining because your life has been threatened. I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is, I'm going to be with you the rest of your life. The bad news is, it's going to get a lot rougher before it's over. Like the guys that were rowing on a big ship, you know, how they did that with the captain banging on the thing and telling them how to row their ships. And the head of the rowers came down one night and said, I've got good news and bad news for you. Good news is, you all get an extra grog of ale tonight. Everyone says, yay, what's the bad news? The captain wants to go water skiing. <laughs> so God says to Jeremiah, if you think this is bad, it's going to get a whole lot worse. And most of Jeremiah's ministry was spent in rejection. I think when he was living in the days of Josiah, they had the same goals, the same direction. It wasn't so bad. But once Jehoiakim became the king, everything went south for Jeremiah. And it lasted all the way to Egypt. When he goes to Egypt, they accuse him of lying. They accuse him of misrepresenting what God had told him. 
after all that he'd been through, he still has to go through that. And God hasn't told us that life's going to be a bed of roses. I get so frustrated hearing these prosperity preachers saying, God doesn't want you to be anything but healthy and wealthy. I wonder if they've read the scriptures. My brethren, kind of, do not count it strange when you fall into different kinds of testings. But the testing of your faith produces patience. But let everyone, let God have his perfect work in you and produce in you what he's trying to do. And Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 5, we glory in all that God is going to do, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces patience and patience experience and experience hope. And this hope will never disappoint us. When I learn to trust God for what happens in my life, when I learn to trust God, if I wind up with a terrible disease, if I can trust God when my children are struggling and going through problems, if I can trust God and say, Lord, I know that you're in charge of this universe and I'm going to trust you for this. If I can do that, my life is 100% easier. It doesn't do any good to fret, to worry, to fuss. If I can rest in the Lord, it doesn't mean I don't try to do something about things that are wrong. I'm not saying that at all. Something needs to be corrected, I need to correct it. But if I can say, Lord, whatever you want is okay with me, I'm going to trust you for this. Not easy to do. There's sort of a breakthrough point in our Christian lives, I think. I don't believe in second work of grace or anything like that, but I think there's a breakthrough point where we come to the point where we can really trust God for what's going on and not fret and not worry. I haven't arrived there yet. I don't know about you, but I think I'm closer than I used to be with that, where I can say, Lord, this isn't what I would have chosen. This isn't what I really wanted, but it's happened. Now, Lord, help me to trust you for that and to believe that you're working out your divine will in it. So what does he say to Jeremiah? Quit your belly aching. Get up and do something that I've told you to do. Stop complaining. If you think this is bad, it's going to get worse. Don't you love that? Today we're supposed to encourage everybody. We're supposed to say nice things. We can't hurt anybody's self-image. But sometimes we need to say to people, Get off your duff and get busy and do what God tells you to do. And stop complaining about everything. And you'll find life ten times easier when you do. And then he puts a parallel into that when he says in verse 5, And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? Now, what's the floodplain of the Jordan? Well, this is the part where the Jordan River rose in the springtime went out over its banks and dropped silt the same way the Mississippi does down at the Delta and makes it very fertile land. And therefore, it's thick with undergrowth. And in those old days, not true today, but in the old days, lions actually lived in that underbrush. And so you'd say to your kids, don't you dare go down to the plains of Jordan and play. It's dangerous down there. And so God says to him, you've been running in a nice little narrow uh, flat place with no rocks in it, no problems whatsoever. But he said, what are you going to do when you have to go down where the lions are, where it's bad, where it's tough, where it's rough? My wife and I try to walk every day, and in this cold weather, we went over to Rocky Hollow. You ever been to Rocky Hollow? 
They've cut the price in half for old people, so you can go over there and enjoy yourself. It's a level track. You walk eight times around, boring as all get out, but it's easy. When we walk in the country, we got to go down hills, up hills, around and over and under, but there's all flat, all easy. And God says to Jeremiah, if you had trouble at Rocky Hollow, what are you going to do when you go down to the, what's that called, Wolf Creek Dam or whatever and work your way across the water down there? It's going to be rougher. And so I'm leaving you with a picture here. If you've run with the footman, and that's wearied you, if you try to teach a Sunday school class and nobody seemed to appreciate it, the kids carried you out feet first, and you went home and said, that's it for me. I'll never try that again. Well, God said, if you run with a footman and they wearied you, how in the world are you going to run with the horses? So don't grow weary in the race. The race doesn't end until your life ends or until the rapture, whichever comes first. You keep right on going all the way to the end. I plan to live to be 100. I don't know what God's plans are, but my plans are to live to be 100. I hope I can stand up here, if they'll let me, when I'm 100 and teach the Bible. That's what I hope to do. And that's what I hope to keep on doing until the end. May God help you to keep on going, not to give up, not to stop struggling, but to stay with the task that God has called you to do. Maybe you're having a hard time at work, and you want to share your faith with people, but nobody's listening to you at work. They even threaten to fire you because of it. Don't give up. Don't give up. Maybe you're trying to share your faith with your neighbors, and they don't want to hear it. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop going to Peru, even though the whole thing falls apart every so often. You keep going back. You keep trusting God. You keep on going and going and going until the Lord takes you home. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the word. Help us. when we